Don't at me, but Angel Lopez is the most fascinating Hollywood gatekeeper you have yet to meet, unless you're very lucky. We're talking to him right after the theme song. What's going on? I am Justin Simeon, and you are listening to Don't At Me with Justin Simeon. And I just wanted to say my name twice. But I wanted to introduce you guys to a really good friend of mine. His name is Angel Lopez, and he is many things. He is a producer. He happens to be producing my next feature film, Bad Hair. He also uh, was a producer on Dear White People, along uh, with a whole host of titles uh, as part of Code Red Films and now Sight Unseen Films. He's also an astrologer and a writer and one of the first people that I actually formed uh, a writer's group with. He's also a homosexual (laughs) and uh, (laughs) the intersection of that and Latinx and all sorts of things. So I'm going to stop talking. Hey, Angel, what's going on? Hey, Justin, how are you? I'm really good. So here we don't do the podcast voice, Angel. We don't don't do this. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, here we go. This is going to (laughs) be, I can already see what this is. Um, so we have a lot to talk about. We do. Let's keep it all the way 100. So let's start with where you are in the present right now, because you are for like a person who wants to come up in the industry. You're what's known as a gatekeeper. You are a dreaded creative executive, the Mm -hmm. person who comes down with the notes, the person who sort of like helps to formulate the project, help people sort of get their screenplays together. But then you actually like produce the films that you do with Sight Unseen. So Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about about that work. Yeah, I've worked as a development executive sort of off and on for the last 12 years now. I mean, really, the process of that is, yeah, you're out there reading scripts, scouring for material, meeting writers, filmmakers, going to festivals, all of that business. And the fabulous also, life. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then also trying to sort of navigate ideas from your own brain, your boss's brains, or yeah. your colleagues, and trying to sort of manifest those as well into, you know, actual fully realized films, television series, et cetera. So so right now, I mean, that's a big part of my job is really trying to source material that we can then launch into something or another, whether, again, that is from the gestation stage with a filmmaker such as yourself. (gasps) Me? (laughs) How you doing? (laughs) Uh, You know, or whether it's projects where for the company we'll – you know, have some submitted to us by somebody's agent manager, mm-hmm. et cetera, and take that on. And you go home and you have a stack of screenplays that you have to read, that you have to give notes on, that you have to sort of comb for typos. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you have the audacity to also try and write yourself. I do. <laughs> so what is that push-pull? Because, you know, I will say, as a person who's worked with a number of creative executives, It's always lovely when you're working with someone that understands the process, someone who isn't just giving you their impressions, but is giving you a really informed opinion because they've been in the trenches. And you are one of those rare um, creative executive producers that's also a writer. But I can imagine that those things at times can feel conflicting. So how do you keep it all straight? Like, how do you do that? It's taken a lot of experience, to be honest, because in the beginning, I wasn't really fully giving the writer any sort of time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what it's come down to is learning to actually 
give the writer his time because when I'm not, then, you know, I can fall into that pit of being the writer in a room with another writer being like, well, if I was doing this. Yes, (laughs) I mean. And that is the worst version. Yeah, you don't want that. That's when it's like you should just go write your own script. Yeah, because, you know, it it is, is, I think – when I started to do Dear White People, the TV show, the first thing I, I was lucky enough to sort of stumble upon Steven Soderbergh's uh, book about his making of the Nick. And he basically, mm-hmm. it's so shady and I love it. He basically <laughs> transcribed all of his conversations with the studios, like their, their notes back and forth oh, wow. and put it into this book so that you could just flip through. And I read it to learn how to, because, uh-huh. you know, as you know, even when the note is, there is a very... I love to receive a note that is, oh, my God, that's exactly what I've been trying to articulate. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it just isn't working and no one quite knows why. And you just have to kind of go back to the drawing board, which is the worst thing to hear. But even worse than that is to be given a suggestion that really doesn't make there doesn't really fit into your vision or whatever it's you know i think it's prescriptive as a, mm-hmm. as opposed to diagnostic so can you talk to me a little bit about that cuz especially for folks that are wanting to break in one thing i always say is like listen getting your own tv show it's like being beat to death by your own dream come true <laughs> like it, it, you you want to oh, you love this oh this is your passion <laughs> okay all right yeah. let's try this out it is a slightly abusive relationship <laughs> that you're <laughs> signing up for unfortunately yeah but sometimes i feel like people People need a prescription. So how do you know the difference? Like, how do you gauge that with writers? Um, I mean, I think it becomes about learning how to have a real relationship with the writer first mm-hmm. and foremost. I think that is the most exciting piece of it for me. Is And that's why I think I am the type of producer executive who likes to really, like, fall in love with something mm-hmm. and fall in love with the creator so that we can then just sit in a room and be like, okay, well, I don't know if the ending's working and here's why it's not working for me. So talk to me as to why it's working for you yeah. as opposed to what if she flew or what if, you know. <laughs> Which, by the way, I'm thinking about incorporating that angel. Don't, I don't know why you just brought that up. I know up. I keep bringing it up. I'm sorry. God. It would just be great. I mean, I mean, could you imagine? Look, if she flew, it would be great. But the movie it's not... just took off. Okay, so let's, let's get into some tea now. Okay, let's get into some real tea. Mm-hmm. Um, because you and I were friends before. We were professional partners. Yes. And one thing I want to talk about, first of all, is just the experience of being somebody who traditionally is the gatekeeper, is at the top of the totem pole. But you're also a lot of things that society isn't comfortable with being at the top of that totem You know what I mean? You're, I don't know what you mean. You're, <laughs> you, as I mentioned, are a homosexual, <laughs> as well as uh, you have a the— gay. Ne- you, A gay. You also have the nerve to be, uh, you know, Latino. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's Latinx. Latinx now, excuse me. Uh, yeah, I mean, what is that? What is that intersection like for you? Uh, I talk a lot about being black and gay and whatever, but I imagine it's different. It is, and I think it's different. I mean, it's a personal experience for everyone who sits in an intersection. For me, I think the you sort of come into these rooms with an extra set of baggage that no one else has mm. because you have sort of grown up, or you, I, (laughs) I have sort of grown up, you know, having to pay more attention to how people perceive me. Am I being too gay? Am I not being gay enough? Am Mm. I not Latin enough? All of those things. And I, you know, grew up in a way that 
you know, I had obviously a very much of a like Latin piece to my mm-hmm. youth, but I didn't sit like squarely in that culture. I had total shame around that mm. growing up. So on top of that, I had the shame of knowing I was gay, but then there was also this shame around being Latin mm. that because I went to a predominantly white school. And so that I think helped form certain things that I've had to overcome. So it's been really interesting walking into these spaces and feeling like one of these things is not like the Mm, other. mm -hmm. And I think for the first good half of my career, I would go in the room and kind of hide in the corner Mm. because I almost felt like I wasn't supposed to be there do you think do you it's think that imposter okay i was syndrome just i was just about yeah, to ask about that, we've, that yeah because we've talked about that which i think is super fascinating and it is always that like am i supposed to be here mm-hmm. like, when is someone going to come in and be like because wait pe- a second <laughs> because even when you earn your spot in the room mm-hmm. so many people tell you via their assumptions the way they talk to you the subtext or they just say it plainly that you got the spot because you're quote-unquote diverse and you know you're sort of filling the diverse spot and if it wasn't for some kind of need for diversity you wouldn't have earned your way in that room yeah or they wouldn't want you there in the first place i mean and people don't think that that exists in hollywood like people think that that's not a thing but it it, your experience is that it is yeah i mean i think we have that shared experience even at times i mean i'm sure this isn't about me okay (laughs) (laughs) but look we can look back at times where you get an email saying you know we'd love for you to join this meeting or come to this screening and you're like oh my gosh i'm being seen and then you walk in and there's like you know, the lady from the mail room uh-huh. and someone's over from finance and you're like, oh. Oh, this is a meeting with Neo. Got this is it. Your- <laughs> mm. <laughs> right. Not to call from any specific experience or No, anything. not at all. This yeah. is about, yeah, oh, they there's a need for me to be in this room. To literally be a, a brown face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that can kind of beat you down because you then walk out of there sort of like, oh, I'm just the token. Mm-hmm here to make somebody feel comfortable enough to hopefully do business right. with this larger entity. And I'm not going to be invited probably to the next meeting or be involved. And and that's the thing. And so I think the other piece of it that I was going to say is that I always have to check like the chip on my shoulder, mm-hmm. which I can find can come up. Because if I'm not now invited in to a space that I feel I deserve to be in, then I'm like, oh, it's because I'm this. Oh, mm-hmm, it's because, mm-hmm. you know, and it's and the cra- like... And the crazy-making thing is, it might be. It might be. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is. Maybe it is. You're and constantly it's constantly having to, to question. <laughs> yeah, and it's always in there whenever I'm walking through my day. I can't ignore it. I can't ever ignore the fact that I'm gay. Mm-hmm. I can't ever... You cannot, Angel. <laughs> Let me tell you something. You can't. I know. Dogs know. Dogs do know. They howl at me. It's because of the Madonna, though. You play a lot of Madonna, Constantly. which I really respect, by the way. I always the, respected that about you. On the way here. <laughs> <laughs> I was playing West Side Story, which is super butch. Uh-huh. So, okay, so this let's get into a sensitive area because this is a you and me thing that we actually had to work through. And I want to talk about it because I feel like a lot of people come into this industry as friends, especially people like us where, you know, there's not necessarily – we don't really see versions of ourselves mm-hmm. already there to mentor us or to usher us in. 
And, you know, one of the most profound pieces of advice I heard, the myth goes that it began with Issa, although I talked to her about this. She's like, I don't remember saying that. So, <laughs> but Lita told me that Issa said it. But So somebody said it. Somebody mm. black said it, uh-huh. uh, which is that, you know, in these situations where you're trying to get someplace and you don't know how, it's not so much about looking up at people you admire, which is a part of it, but it's mm-hmm. also about looking around and looking at people who are exactly where you are. And that tends to be your friends. Mm-hmm. And you and I started working together in a writer's group. Mm -hmm. Uh, We met a lot of friends that way. I met Lena through a writer's group that spun off from the writer's group that you started. And when it came time to try to get my movie off the ground, Dear White People, I turned to my friends. It was you. It was Lena. It was a a woman named Ann Lee. We were sort of the original core of producers. Mm -hmm. And through all of the iterations of Dear White People, other producers came on board, people who, like, you know, had more experience in the space. We ended up making the movie. And when we sold it as a TV show— suddenly we're realizing, oh, okay, not everybody is going to go to this next part of the journey. Mm -hmm. And some of that Mm -hmm. has to do with contracts that made total sense at the time. And, you know, ones maybe that didn't, but it didn't matter because we're making our movie. And, you know, it, it, it came down to a lot of stuff that at the end of the day is very hard for it not to be personal. Yeah. Because we are still friends. And mm-hmm. we, from my perspective, it's like, okay, there's like a bucket where my personal relationships live and my professional relationships live. And then there's a bucket that's just for the project. And it's very difficult for me sometimes as a very you know, a people-pleasing coach Dependy, you know, gay boy from Houston, Texas, Uh uh, raised Catholicist to sort of say, no, this is right for the picture or whatever it might be. Yeah. And we had some feelings around that. We did. Yeah. It felt like, you know, I felt guilty about your not being involved in the show. You felt some type of way about not being involved in the show. And we worked our way, maybe at first passively aggressively, but then directly through it. Very passive aggressive. And I just wanna, <laughs> I want, I want you to talk to that because here's the thing: like any anyone who's gonna take that advice and sort of look around to your community to come up in at a certain point, show business kicks in if you're lucky. That's the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. And show business doesn't really play by the rules of community or friendship. And I think a lot of kids coming up need to hear this conversation. Even if it means to just be ready for it because you need to learn how to do it or maybe not to, you know, just to know that it's a part of this process. So I'm going to let you talk now. (laughs) What is your perspective on that? Look, I think there's two ways to handle getting up in this business and working with people who you also want to spend time with on the weekend. Mm -hmm. There's the path of like pretending where it's like, everything's great. Hey, girl. (laughs) (laughs) See you on Monday. I hate you. Yeah. Or <laughs> show's great. <laughs> you know, or there is just growing up and adulting and being able to communicate through the whole process. And mm-hmm. yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, I think, you know, through the whole Dear White People television of it all, I think, you know, I had to sort of navigate wanting to sort of not be a thorn mm-hmm. in your your side or anyone's side who was involved because I was just also just incredibly excited that mm. it was happening. Yeah. When I would have a moment where I was thinking, ugh, this should be me and mm-hmm. all of that business, mm-hmm. you know, as far as being involved, I would honestly go back to a conversation we had while making the movie and saying to you, someday you're going to see the words Dear White People on a billboard mm. in L.A., I don't know if you remember this, but I, I just remember driving on the 10 freeway and seeing a billboard for the TV show mm. 
with the name and I was like, oh my God, yeah, we did it. And, and it doesn't have your name on it. Yeah, but I was honestly like, that's what got me through was like, I ultimately had to, and this is all my personal experience, but I ultimately had to just say, well, it wasn't about me mm. at the end of the day. This was, this is being a producer. Right. This is, I was producing your vision and your work and that was what I wanted. Mm-hmm. Dear White People was a story I wanted told, and I'm so grateful it's been told. But it wasn't my story to tell. Mm-hmm. It was your story to tell. But you were one of those hands on the boulder. For you know, sure. Pushing it up the hill. Pushing it up, yeah. And the crazy thing is there's so many times in community where we help our friends, and we don't ask for credit, and we don't get it, and we feel some type of way. And then mm-hmm. there's times when we help our friends, and we do ask for credit, and we don't get it, and we feel some type of way. And there's just like there's, <laughs> and there's sometimes when like you know what that joke killed, and I gave that joke, but who cares? Who this cares? is their night. You, you sort of like it's a it's a grab bag of emotions. It can be very complicated. Yeah. I think I sort of I felt very guilty. I, I didn't know what to do because I'm navigating the space for the first time. I'm dealing with really large companies that sort of have certain things that they want and don't want. No company wants more producers. That's sort of like just a, a <laughs> yes. blanket rule. I've learned that. Yeah, and making a first TV show, I didn't know where my powers began and ended. What are mm-hmm. the things I can actually ask for? What are the things that are ridiculous? You know, you sort of have to go off of the vibe and what people are telling you. But I sort of felt guilt about it and kind of just ignored it and sort of put my head into the game. I mean, you had to kind of like tap me on the shoulder and be like, boo-boo, yeah. <laughs> I'm mad at you. We have a conversation to have. <laughs> you want to have drinks? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but we talked it out. And that's really what I was going to say. The other path is just communication. And yeah. that's the harder part. But It is the harder part, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's really hard to sort of have to make yourself vulnerable and say, I'm in pain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, especially yeah. when... On the other side of it is something very important to the other person that you don't want to put, you know, tinge with guilt. You don't want to tear their thing down. No. So, you know, I think it became about timing for me. And I think I've just learned since then, too, that I have to ultimately start with taking care of myself. Yeah. And, you know, making sure that I'm looking out for me because at the end of the day, you in this industry, you – can work with your friends and they can be incredibly supportive. And I've been really blessed with working with really supportive friends. But they ultimately are going to have to look out for themselves and mm-hmm. their best interests. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't involve yours, they have to do what, what they, they have gotta do. to do. Yeah. And I actually had a an old boss of mine who was like a mentor to me on some levels. And he had said to me at one point, you have to be careful because you – might not be so successful at this business because you're so sensitive. Mm. Mm. Interesting. He's like, you're a little too nice. Oh. And I took that and digested it and thought to myself, well, that's on some level has to be my superpower that I am just nice. You can can be political or or – Diplomatic, I should say. Yeah, and being sensitive doesn't mean I'm stupid. Well, here's the T. Everyone in this business is sensitive. Yeah, they just don't wear it. We just deal with it differently. I mean, Mm -hmm. some people deal with their sensitivity by screaming and demanding what they want. Some people deal with their sensitivity by never, ever demanding what they want. And you always hear the story of the person who made it, and they took everyone with them. And over time, that destroyed what they had Mm -hmm. because it was about – 
It was about paying people's bills at a certain point. It was about making sure that so-and-so doesn't get mad at you at a certain point. And, um, you know, when I was going through the sort of gauntlet of season one, I just remembered thinking this is a lesson I have to – because I'm also – very, like I'm a nice, per- like I'm a nice guy. Like that's sort of like yeah. the persona. But I had to learn, like, oh, I can't be nice in this moment and get what I want and get what the show needs. I have to sort of, um, I have to feel the pain of telling someone something that I know they don't want to hear and look them in the eye every day and know that they're pissed about it. And some people love to do that. Yeah, I never grew up with that particular muscle. Um, but I, I, it's, it is a double-edged sword because I also think, like you just said, it can be a superpower um, to have tough conversations, mm-hmm. uh, to have them in a way that doesn't feel confrontational. Um, right. So, yeah, I'm and, just – and I'm grateful that we were able to get through it. Oh, completely. Yeah. yeah and, I mean, I knew we would, yeah. so it didn't really terrify me. But, you know, just tying back to what we were talking about before, don't you think it all stems back to that whole – I just want to be seen. I just want to be told that it's okay that I get to be in the room. Absolutely. So whatever you want me to say, I'm just going to sit here and smile and be nice. And, you know, I think that's something that, you know, people of color, queer, I think women, you know, I mean, not that I'm here to like say what I think women feel, but I do think that that was a big part of it that, yeah. you know, we all sort of walk into these rooms that are predominantly like cis, hetero, white males mm-hmm. and – you know, and you're it's an, like, and it's an extra layer. let me be here. Yeah. And you don't have to be a marginalized community to, no. you know, I, I think in codependency terms, it's called the proxy self, the mm-hmm. sort of version of you that stands in for you. And it's made up of the expectations of others. And we sort of learn at a young age. And I think, I think specifically gay boys really learn this lesson um, is that you, there's a version of you that you have to sort of maintain at all times that may or may not be you because mm-hmm. you f- the fear is that the people around you will stop loving you mm-hmm. if they know who you really are. And even once you come out and even once you go through that phase, it's still that's still the pattern that you learned how to communicate. And you don't have to be a marginalized community to do that, but it certainly don't help. And, no. <laughs> you know, because whether because if you're Latino or you're black or you're gay or you're a woman, you do have to walk around other people's expectations of you. And that involves immediately creating this proxy version yeah. that can be very exhausting, can help you get into rooms that you didn't think you could get into. But sometimes you sit in that room and you go, well, I'm not here, though. Mm-hmm. This version of me is here, and that's not me. Yeah, and I can see it. Yeah, I and see I it in and I can't stand her. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call her Shelly. We'll call her Shelly. Yes. Shelly answered. Like I remember, <laughs> I was doing this junket, and Shelly showed up. Honey, Shelly was there, and and uh, Shelly was answering the question because you just start to answer the same questions for, literally for hours at a time. And my whole thing is like I wanted to answer the question as if it was the first time. So I would do the like, hmm. Well, you know, I think I got the idea sometime around, you know, and you sort of answer the question. And at a certain point, you, I hated myself because I was like, right. who is that? Whoever this person is, I can't stand them. They are fake. And I just want to eat a cheeseburger. And I did that. Um, <laughs> all right, girl, Angel, hold on for a second. We got to take a break and be right back. You are listening to Don't At Me.
Thank you for listening to this KCRW podcast. In case you don't know us, KCRW is public radio in Los Angeles, bringing the best of NPR to Southern California. We're also known for our own brand of bold and innovative programming, evocative storytelling, taste-making music, and audio documentaries that are little movies for your ears. You can join our community to support this show and others, or make a one-time donation just to say thank you. Find out more at kcrw.com slash join. Whew, and we are back with Angel Lopez. I'm still Justin Simeon. We've talked about the present. We've talked about the recent past. Let's go to the beginning. Like, what made you fall in love with this industry? Like, what made a gay Latinx boy think he could be here, want to be here, brave the slings and arrows? Like, what made you want to do it? Well, I grew up right outside of L.A. in what's known affectionately as the Valley. (laughs) And um, I think, you know, on one hand, I was really blessed that my parents— were big movie fans. My parents actually like opened up one of the very first video stores mm. in in LA in like the early 80s. Wow. So movies were just always a big part of our lives. Like those were our nights out mm-hmm. on the weekends or afternoons. We would go to the movies, but I would also go and see Back to the Future and in the middle of watching it go, oh, that's right by my school. Or, you yeah. know, like, oh, yeah, I yeah, think or in watching E.T. and like the bike scene. I'm like, oh, that's where so-and-so lives. So it all kind of so I figured out how movies work pretty mm. early on. I was still able to get wrapped up in them, obviously, because I was a child. <laughs> but I also had this understanding of, oh, these are things that get made and people come together and Universal Studios was here and I would always bug my parents. They took me there lots of times. I remember, you know, riding the tram at Universal Studios and, you know, seeing the people on the back lot waving and at us and thinking, oh, this is where people make movies. And then, of course, it was like a crazy full circle moment when I got to then work on the Universal lot. Oh, sure. My first job in L.A. And yeah. Was driving the little golf cart. Oh, sure. That must have been really yeah, magical. Yeah, with my colleague Holly. And I remember Holly driving and I waved at people and she's like, yeah, you got to wave at them. And I burst into tears because I was like, oh, my God. Like, wow. I remember being the kid on that thing, and now here I am, the person in the in the cart. And wow. so, so for me, it was always like something that I thought about, visioned. I was always making little movies at home mm-hmm. with my, you know, my dad bought us like a camcorder and like the big bulky ones, yeah. and making, <laughs> putting my poor cousins into like scenes and whatever, and making movies with my toys. When and, are we having the screening? <laughs> oh my I god! Know, my mom still has them. <gasps> But, uh, Screening. <laughs> but, you know, so doing that kind of stuff and also with the video store, my parents would put me in charge of buying everything for, like, the family section. So I would, wow. like, get the little wow, book. Yeah, Angel? I was, like, eight years old, like, sitting with, like, the manual, with the book with all the, like, movies to offer. And I'd be like, oh, Land Before Time, I think that'll be a hit. Let's so order you, three. You were literally programming. <laughs> I was programming for, <laughs> yeah. for the Silmar San Fernando area wow. of L.A. in the early 80s. Um, That's really interesting because you went from that experience into a career where you really are sort of, I mean, you are one of these fabled gatekeepers and the decisions that you make and the projects that you love and the ones that you don't directly affects, you know, a segment of the marketplace and what gets seen there and how it gets seen. That's pretty, that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it's always kind of been in my blood of like, you know, what do I want to see? And um, I think just the idea of 
putting movies out, but not just like, what's the story, but how does it get me? I mean, I used to like like come up with ideas for movies, but the first thing I would do would be like draw the poster. Mm. And like, who would be the cast? <laughs> so interesting. That's how you, I'm imagining how you ended up in marketing, right? Yeah, marketing it made first. so much sense. To because like that's where we that. met. Mm-hmm. I was in PR at Focus and you were in marketing. Yeah. And you had had up until that point, a pretty, you were kind of all over the place, right? Like you were into theater and you were into all kinds of stuff. Studied, yeah, I studied theater in school. I was in San Francisco. Then I moved to New York um, to do, try to do theater. But as anyone who moves to New York does in their 20s, early 20s, you're like having 17 jobs. And mm-hmm. my sister, my older sister, who's like totally one of my role models, always was like, you need to get a job that's in film in some way. So I got an internship, like a floater position, Mm, mm -hmm. where I just worked at New Line Cinema and kind of worked in various departments. In route to film. In route to film. So I would, like, work reception, but then they started putting me in the marketing department or the development department. So I kind of got a little taste Mm -hmm. of how a film studio worked Mm -hmm. and thought it was interesting, and that's when I decided to move back to L.A. and then got the job at Focus Features where I met you. Um, and your life has never been the same. Um, I remember doing yes. a Janet Jackson impersonation, and that's, I feel like, when we clicked. I, just, I, I wasn't even, imper- I was just, like, lip syncing to when, when I, think I think of, of you. you. And I, I think it was my side look to no one that uh, sealed our friendship. It's <laughs> my favorite Janet video of all time. It's brilliant. It is. And there's a reason it's her first number one hit. Mm. And your impression of it really should <laughs> Find its way out into the world and one, will. One day, one day. <laughs> we just have to find the right wig. Only with her. Well, I'm, listen, we have a few on, on hold. <laughs> so, you know, here's the twist. Um, you're also an astrologer. And, you know, this is one of those things that feels so Hollywood. You know, <laughs> like, I'm an astrologer. Right. It feels so woo-woo. I've actually had a reading from you. And it's pretty profound because you find a way to speak to the heart of where someone's at with very little information about them. I sort of, um, you know, I remember, because obviously, like, as friends, there are lots of things that you know about me, can infer about me. And then there's things that, like, you you know, especially at that time in my life, I hadn't really revealed to anyone or talked about to anyone. And um, you really spoke to me at a time when I was really going through it. You know, I sort of was, uh, I'd been working for... I don't know, eight years, 10 years uh, at my day job while hustling on the weekends to try to make the writing and directing happen. And I was, it was right before, I feel like this was maybe a year or so before I really began the journey for Dear White People. And I remember you walking me through what things like, you know, what you came here to do and um, how long it might take and what the what the road ahead is going to look like. And it wasn't so much a fortune telling. It really was like a, a therapy session, but you were speaking to something in me that I didn't know could be seen by someone else. Mm-hmm. Talk, like, how did that get <laughs> into your, like, how did you get into that thing? Like Magic. Yeah, but, like, when did that happen for you? Um, that happened in 1999. I was living in San Francisco. I was in school and I needed a part-time job and I got a job at a metaphysical bookstore because yes. I love candles. And I was this like... This is the show I want to see. <laughs> and it's it's in process. Um, I had, Yeah, I had just broken up with a boyfriend, mm. but I felt bad and I want him back. I'd also just gotten fired from a job for... Mm-hmm. Reasons I won't get into, but... Young Angel was a reckless child. <laughs> San Francisco, honey. <laughs> um, 
But I popped into this metaphysical bookshop and started talking to this woman, and she was like, well, if you need a job, you could work here. Mm. And they hired me relatively quickly after that, and on my first day there, the very witchy manager of the store said, oh, you're going to be an astrologer here someday. And I was hmm. like, okay, this place is weird. And <laughs> I was like, I like my horoscope, but I don't know if that's going right. to be me. I just want to like get the discount. And sure enough, a year after I started there, I was working full-time as an astrologer. Mm-hmm. I had like all these other things, people telling me that. It was just like the synchronicity of it all. I think I was in a place in my life where I was opening myself up to optimism. Mm -hmm. I was suffering from like massive anxiety at the time, having like debilitating panic attacks and had sort of begun therapy around then, Mm. around coming out because I hadn't come out. So I was sort of, but I did. And then it it actually wasn't as terrible as I thought it was going to be. So I I think the idea of like embracing optimism into my life that, oh, there's a future opened me up to possibilities of like, oh, maybe I am an astrologer. Mm. And it did come very easily to me, and I was suddenly, like, teaching workshops on it and had clients who would come back to me. And it was just, like, a really strange, interesting thing. But I think, you know, there is, like, a storytelling component to mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. in a way that in the beginning I sort of had to battle, like, oh, am I just, like, making this shit up, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And ultimately it was really the connection with people. And once you get also really specific things that mm-hmm, show up mm-hmm. in these readings, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, really? That does resonate for you? I always <laughs> say I'm like the most skeptical astrologer. Yeah, you really are. Because I will like, yeah. You're like, does that Yeah, I mean, I will be talking to someone <laughs> who like works in construction and say like, what's the deal with like makeup? And they're like, I mean, this happened. It burst into tears. Like, oh my god! I've never told anyone, but my dream was always to be a makeup artist. And I'm like, well, let's talk about that. This is a construction. So- <laughs> okay, first of all, so that's just like the kind of shit that I think made me go, all right. Well, maybe this isn't woo- as woo woo as mm-hmm. I thought, and and maybe I should just answer the call and embrace to, it. And embrace it. And it's obviously been a part of learning about my authenticity and. Well, uh, because conventional wisdom, and this is don't at me, so this is all about conventional wisdom that doesn't prove to be true. Mm -hmm. Um, But conventional wisdom would say, okay, I want to be a writer in Hollywood. That's a part of myself that is incongruent with this career, with the, you know, the sort of like uh, culture of Hollywood. I mean, uh, everyone in Hollywood has a psychic, but no one in Hollywood is one. You know what I mean? Um, and, And like... I'm curious, like, about your kind of combining all the things that you are and how maybe it has or maybe it hasn't sort of, like, impacted your work, both, you know, the work that gets you money and the work that you do because you love it. I mean, I definitely am aware of it at all times, that it's this thing. It was I was something I never really talked about when I first got into the industry and mm-hmm. started working because I didn't want anyone to judge me as being weird or crazy or ridiculous. Um, And again, I think it was ultimately as I gained more confidence in the person that I am and had support from friends who were excited by it that I was then able on some level to have to come out as something Mm, else to people. I kind of remember that. Yeah, it was very much a coming out. And yeah, I don't know if you remember, but I started writing this – 
blog. Of course I remember. Yeah, so you I had an AOL series. Well, that's the Let thing. the children know I you started... were out here in these streets. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I had a blog and mm-hmm. I started writing this blog just for fun and people were responding to it about astrology mm-hmm. and then somebody read it that, or Ann Lee, our friend, sent yeah. it to her friend at AOL and then it became a show and for a brief time and then they had turnover and it was a thing. But <laughs> But that actually made me go, oh, this is another job. Yeah. That I have to honor mm-hmm. and will always have. And, you know, my goal is to, as a storyteller now, to work astrology. And when I'm creating characters, the first thing I do is mm, figure the, out their chart. Sure. Yeah, it's I, your way in. Yeah, it gives me a whole sort of just personality template for who they are, but also where their strengths are, their challenges. Sure. And it becomes a really phenomenal tool also in the office just to like understand the dynamics of people and what they're bringing. And, and do you still do readings? I do. Ooh. <laughs> it's all very word of mouth. How does one get a reading with Angel Lopez? Well, I think the best way to do it is you can just follow me on Insta. Okay. And DM me. Okay, what is your Insta? It is AriesSoul30. I love how you like follow me on Insta like we just all would know it was AriesSoul07895. What is it? It is AriesSoul329. 329. Yes, Aries, A-R-I-E-S-S-O-U-L, 329. Cool. What else you got to plug? What else you got going on? Let's let's plug Hanny. We're going to plug and then we're going to don't at me. Yeah, I mean, we're obviously going to plug Bad Hair. (sighs) Starting my own podcast with my hubby, my boo. Called the spiritual gaze. Oh, I, I see what you did there. I see it because you gaze exactly, but you're gazing as well. Yes, thank oh, you. Well, we'll look out for that. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk some shit. What do you hate right now about the industry? <laughs> like, what can't you stand that? Like, if we were like in a polite, super cute, like you're listening to NPR, and what do you? What you wouldn't want to say? Like, what's the tea? Like, come on, Ooh. let's let's get into it. What's your? What are your don't at me's right now about this industry? Look, I think the challenges are in here. I have to be a little political because I work with a lot of people within yeah, this industry. Well, but listen, look, I'm going to do it. Good. Look, I think my biggest issue <laughs> is this whole idea of, you know, stories with people of color don't travel. Ugh, girl. You know, it's the constant conversation that I think we all have. And it's challenging to have to hear it over mm-hmm. and over. Still hear it, by the way. Yeah. And look, I don't disagree that that is like a reality. Um, you know, I understand that Black Panther was a huge success worldwide, but it was also a Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. So I get it. And I get that like, you know. People have their caveats as to why it was an exception. Completely. Along with all of the other exceptions every year. But I think it's our responsibility as the gatekeepers, as the producers, as the people who are out there making the decisions to keep pushing it into people's faces, yeah. to not sort of step back and say, well, that it's t- it's just too hard. We don't want to take the risk and lose the money or what have you. And look, I get it. Like, it's business and a lot of money goes into these things. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, somebody has to be the bold risk taker. Yeah. And it's not as simple sometimes as just putting it out there. Like Mm -hmm. it requires sometimes more money, more effort to teach people how to watch these stories. And one of the things that is so – one of the things that's so profound, you know, to me is that wherever you go, colorism is always a thing. People Mm – no matter what community you're in, there's always this desire to approach 
keep inching closer and closer to whiteness. I kind of think that like race is one of the most successful American exports ever. It really started here. Yeah. Now the whole, the whole world really follows this sort of European Caucasian standard. So for me, it's like it's so important to teach people, even if they're not open to it, how to embrace um, black and brown faces because it does affect their communities. It does. I mean, skin bleaching is a huge industry in Africa, Mm -hmm. India, you know, Asia. And part of it is because I think these people really struggle with seeing humanity in faces like ours. Yeah, so it's important for us to just keep putting all these other different faces out in front of people so that they can just start to, on some level, normalize that, oh, yes, there are more than just one version of these stories and one version of this cast. Right. You know, I'm super excited for things like Vita and, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, my God, I cannot wait for Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah, like things like that. But it's, you know, I do get nervous that then people, if it doesn't work Mm -hmm. as well as everyone wants it, if it doesn't make $80 million, then people are going to go, oh, well, then we can't do any more. Yeah, and people will go that. Um, (laughs) Speaking of, I will give my don't at me, which is I think – I probably won't do this, but I think I need to give up sequels this summer. Mm -hmm. I just – I just am really over it. I'm just sort of like, we're. this is the same movie y'all made two years ago. The same one. Yeah. We're not fooling. You're not fooling anybody. Like, no shade, but like, we, like the dinosaurs escaped. We got it. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, nature found a way. You know what I'm saying? It's like, how, what, what we, they took over the park. Now they, no shade. They took over the park. They took over the whole world. Now what? What's next? Are we taking them to space? <laughs> and I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know if it's good or bad. But I'm just saying, like, I, as an audience member, I'm just kind of like, I don't want to see the same movie again. Well, yeah, and then those resources can go elsewhere. Yeah, be put towards something maybe perhaps more unique. But here's the, here's the rub, though, because it is a business. Mm-hmm. If audiences want to see something and they show up for it, the logic is, well, why not give them what they want? But the artist in us, I think, is like, well, sometimes audiences need to be taught and sometimes audiences need to be brought into things. I mean, yeah. I think Steve Jobs sort of taught us that, which is that, yeah, you can introduce products that nobody wants and a year later, everyone needs it. Mm-hmm. And um, that can be used for evil or good. Uh, and it's so interesting that in our industry, it very rarely is thought of that way unless it's, a a white piece of entertainment. Like, yeah. I was just talking about the story the other day about 30 Rock and how, mm-hmm. you know, 30 Rock was just doing terrible in the ratings, but it kept getting awards love and they they kept on the air because it kept getting awards love and eventually they were able to sell it foreign, you know, internationally right. because of the awards love and they made just a ton of money. But they put in for that show in a way that they say, I don't know, and listen, I don't know the story behind the story. Maybe (laughs) he'll come on and talk about it. But um, I don't know that that happened with the Carmichael show or, you know, with other pieces that Mm -hmm. have to do with us. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Or, I mean, I feel like you have an insight into that that I probably don't even have. Uh, No, I mean, I think that that is, I mean, it is just the sales of it all is like such a big driving force to Mm -hmm. it that... Yeah, you sort of can't avoid it. But I do agree that, yeah, it just becomes always challenging when you're just bringing race or anything of that nature into the conversation. So where's the Steve Jobs, where's the Steve Jobs of film going to come from? Or film and TV, like the person who's like, you know what? They don't want this, but 
they're going to get it. <laughs> like, and we're going to spend the money to figure it out. I mean, out. it's probably somebody we know yeah, at right? this point. I feel like there are a lot of people out there who are really just like pushing it hard. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are pushing it yeah, hard. And yeah. And I think it's beautiful that, you know, the Avas and the Linas yeah. of the world and Charles the U's yeah, yeah. are out there. Mm-hmm. Like, Macro's doing it. Sight Unseen is doing it. Yeah. Sight Unseen you is guys, really doing it. Sight Unseen, which, you know, uh, Julie Lebedev mm-hmm. is an executive producer of Dear White People and Bad Hair. Um, it's her company. And, uh, yeah, and Eddie Weissman and Eddie Weissman. Overman. That's and, right. Yeah, they work really hard. And that's the thing. It's like these are the conversations we have. And, I mean, they are all white people. Mm -hmm. But they are very much – I know. Sorry. Sorry. But (laughs) they are incredibly, like, aware, hyper-aware of this conversation. And so we're always, like, trying to activate on a a larger scale. Lift every voice and Mm -hmm. sing. Uh, My vibrato is unparalleled. Angel, thank you so much for this unfiltered conversation. You're so welcome. For steeping and brewing and spilling all of the tea. Mm. Now, listen, if you have a problem with what we said, don't at me. Slash, but you can kind of at me because we do want to hear from you. Uh, I'm at jsim07. Angel, you're at Soul 329 That's me. You can hit us up, but no knee-jerk reactions, please. So thank you for for bearing and, and having the cur- the courage to be honest uh, with me, Angel, I adore you. And My pleasure, I adore you. I hope after this, even more and more people adore you because you're fabulous. Thanks, All right. Boo. Well, thanks. Bye. Bye. I would like to thank my special guest, Angel Lopez, producer Gina Delvac. Special thanks to Vishnu Vallabhanani. Our production engineers, J.C. Swadek and Ray Warner, head of programming, Gary Scott. Chris Bowers created our theme song. This is Don't At Me with Justin Simeon. Listen, if you like the show, this would be the time to at me, think, peace me, whatever you want. Just please, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Leave a review. Not only would I love to hear from you, but it's super important. It helps us get the show out there. We will be back next week with another episode of Don't At Me from the one and only KC. RW.